Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the second episode of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast about it to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. We've got a great episode for you today. In part one, we'll cover the latest news in Serie A and around Napoli. In part two, we'll do some transfer talk. And I was tempted to talk about Dries Mertens today because those rumors seem to be heating up. But since we spoke about an attacking player last episode, we're going to let the Mertens situation simmer just a little bit longer. Instead, we'll talk about Kaladu Koulibaly today. And then in part three, we'll do something a little bit different. Since there's no live game action, we're going to look to the past. So today we're going to revisit the second leg of Napoli's UEFA Cup final against Stuttgart in 1989. And for the younger listeners, or if you just started following Calcio most more recently, hopefully you can learn a little bit about the glory days. And if you were fortunate enough to have enjoyed that match in real time, and I'm envious of those who have, then hopefully it'll be a nice trip down memory lane. So let's get right into the news. Uh, last time we spoke, we talked about the protocols that Gravani submitted to the government to resume training on May 4th. Now, over the last few days, we learned a few more details about those protocols. So it's a two-phase plan. In the first phase is all the testing that we spoke about last time. The second phase is a three-week period. At the beginning, the players will train mostly in isolation, and they'll do some small group training with the appropriate social distancing measures in place both on the field and in the locker rooms, and there won't be any scrimmages. They'll eat and shower in their individual rooms. Then over time, we'll start to introduce some team uh, training, including scrimmages. Anyone who returns from abroad will have to self-quarantine for a while before rejoining the club. And if someone tests positives, they'll be uh, isolated and additional testing and screening will be done. We also learned that 20 facilities will be required and the hotel staff will not be permitted in the hotels. Everything will be run by the clubs. And when traveling, everyone will need to wear protective gloves and masks. So that's all included in a 47-page document that was sent to the Ministers of Health and Sport, which will be discussed on a call on Wednesday. We also heard from Enrico uh, Castellacci, who's the president of the Italian Football Doctors, uh, who was critical of FIGC for apparently developing this plan without including the team doctors, and I can't say I blame him. And then a couple of days ago, 
Uh, we had Giovanni Malago, who's the president of CONI, which is the Italian National Olympic Committee, uh, who made some controversial statements in an interview with Corriere dello Sport. And I'm praising, but he starts by saying, I don't mean to be controversial, uh, which anyone who starts a sentence with, I don't mean to be controversial, is about to say something controversial. So he comes out and says that right from the beginning, he would have put all parties, the Football Association, the league, uh, and their coaches, FIGC, UEFA, FIFA, and the broadcasters, all in a room, and he wouldn't have let them out until they had a precise, clear, practical, and convincing plan. Now, I'm not sure what value that statement adds, uh, considering he made it at this stage with the benefit of retrospect. And FIGC would uh, formally respond in a press release, uh, expressing their amazement at Malago's comments and confirming that they've been in close communication with all parties and they're working on a constructive and proactive way for the betterment of the common good. Now, should this all play out, the talks are that the Coppa Italia will be played first before resuming Serie A and that the semifinals and the final would be played in the San Paolo and Napoli behind closed doors. Now, obviously, that's because the North has been hit harder than the South. In other news, Sedici President uh, Francesco Girelli announced on Sunday that Lega Pro directors have approved a plan to end Sedici, and that will be submitted to the Football Association on May 4th. Now, Girelli actually makes some pretty good points. We already know that when play resumes, Serie A will be top priority, then Serie B, and then Sedici, so who knows when Sedici will actually resume. Also, unlike the top two leagues, Sedici has 60 clubs. So I mentioned earlier you need 20 facilities to restart Serie A, so presumably you would need 60 facilities to resume Sedici. Now, maybe by the time we get to Sedici, the situation in Italy will be a little bit different, but all indications are that we're going to be dealing with COVID-19 for a while. And Girelli also proposed how to deal with promotion and relegation. So for promotions to Serie B, he suggests promoting the top team currently in each group uh, because they all have decent margins over the, the uh, second place clubs. So Monza has a 16 point lead in group A, Vicenza has a 6 point lead in group B, which is not huge, and uh, Regina has a 9 point lead in group C. And then the fourth promotion spot would be determined by a 28 team tournament with 9 teams from each group and the winner of the Italian Cup participating in that tournament, and that no clubs would be relegated. Then for Serie D, the top team in each of the nine divisions would be promoted, so each group in Serie C would play with 23 teams. Now the owner of Bari has already responded that he will not accept this proposal, at least not the tournament portion, and if you're wondering who owns Bari, well it's none other than Aurelio De Laurentiis. Now, you don't need to wait until May 4th. I can tell you right now that this will be rejected by the Football Association. Serie B has already come out and slammed this proposal, uh, criticizing Girelli for not consulting with the other leagues and for not thinking about the financial impact on Serie B and Serie D. And I actually think this plan makes sense for the same reasons that Girelli mentions. Uh, I get clubs will go bankrupt, um, but just about every professional football club in Italy has gone bankrupt at some point in their history now. This would be a little bit different because you have a number of clubs going bankrupt all at once. But I think over time, those clubs would either restart, perhaps under new ownership, or you'd have new clubs take their places. I do sympathize for the players and the staff who would uh, lose their jobs as a result, and I think that's the hardest part about all of this. Uh, most of the players in Sedici earn less than 30,000 euros uh, gross per season, which is about 1,500 euros a month. 
you just hope that as new clubs are formed, uh, both players and staff would find uh, employment again. Lastly, the Mexican League has decided to suspend promotions and relegations for five years. So we're starting to see that as the days go by, leagues are starting to make some concrete decisions on how we'll move forward. So we'll keep you posted on how this plays out in Italy. Moving on to Napoli, we spoke last time about the 30 staff that were laid off, and I suggested that De Laurentiis should step up and take care of these folks. Well, he didn't, but it looks like Gattuso and the players have. Apparently, this started with a call between Mertens and Gattuso, and then the entire team came together to make an undisclosed contribution to the employees that were laid off. The other story that made headlines was Fabio Cannavaro telling sports media set that he'd love to coach Napoli one day. Now, Cannavaro has been coaching in China for about five years, but it's really difficult to know how that would translate to Serie A. I'd like to see him coach in Serie B for a while before taking a shot at Serie A. You know, time and time again, we've seen players rush to coach in Serie A, and it fails miserably, like we saw with Thiago Mota this year. But if you work your way through the system, you can do very well, and we're seeing that now with Simone Inzaghi. Cannavaro also gave his opinion on his favorite players, who were Immobile and Insigne, which is not surprising, both of them being Napolitan. And he gave his thoughts on Sari and Gattuso, who he played with for the Nazionale, both of whom he holds in high regard. And Caravaro is actually becoming a great follow on social media. You know, he's obviously already well-liked around Italy because of what he did on the field and leading Italy to World Cup glory in 06. Uh, but he recently did an Instagram live story with Francesco Totti that was pretty funny. You know, they talked about Buffon wanting to play until he's 50, and Totti mentions how his son asks him why Cannavaro won the golden ball instead of his dad. And then, while they were talking, uh, Mario Balotelli suddenly appears in the comments saying, Francia, mi fa male la gamba ancora, which is, uh, in English, he tells Totti that his leg still hurts, and that's... Uh, Balotelli referencing the 0-9-10 uh, Coppa Italia final where Totti gave him a pretty vicious kick in the calf. And then last week we saw Sky Sport uh, post a video of Can the Cannavaro brothers enjoying a traditional uh, Napolitan lunch for Easter, uh, even though they're in China. And uh, Fabio asked Paolo, you know, if they still have, uh, if they have Nutella in China, uh, to which he responds, of course we're not on the moon. So that's it for the news. In part two, we'll do some transfer talk. about Kaladu Koulibaly. So there's been a lot of speculation that he may be sold this year and a lot of that has to do with the difficult year that he's had so far. So before I talk about his future, I want to talk about value and to do that I think it's useful to understand why Koulibaly has struggled. So for me this can be traced back to last summer when Koulibaly played in the African Cup of Nations. 
Now, Senegal had an excellent tournament, advancing all the way to the finals, which is great for Senegal, but terrible for Napoli. The final was played on July 19th, and Napoli's summer training was from July 6th to the 26th, so Koulibaly missed the entire retreat. He also didn't play in any of the club's preseason friendlies, so the opening match against Fiorentina was his first game time since rejoining the club. Now, fitness wasn't an issue, even though he missed the final of the African Cup of Nations for yellow card accumulation, he still played six full matches, including a semi-final that went to extra time. The issue was that Napoli had signed Costas Manolas and Giovanni Di Lorenzo in the summer, and Koulibaly did not have time to develop chemistry with his new defensive partners, and that showed up on the field. Now, I'm not talking about the game against Juventus. An own goal can happen to anyone, and even the Iguain goal where he turned Koulibaly, that was more a great play by Iguain than a poor play by Koulibaly, in my opinion. But we did see defensive breakdowns against Cagliari and Atalanta, both of which cost Napoli points in the final minutes of the match. Now, you would expect after four or five matches that uh, back with the club that the chemistry would no longer be an issue, but at the end of the Cagliari match, Koulibaly was shown a red card for dissent, and subsequently suspended for two matches. Then he would return for the Hellas Verona match, but that would be Napoli's last win before a run of eight consecutive Serie A matches without a win. So sure, Koulibaly didn't play well during that period, but neither did the rest of the team. And then, in the loss to Parma, which was the last game of that stretch, the injury problems would start. So Koulibaly would miss five games with a bicep injury, then he'd return for one, and then he sustained a thigh injury that kept him out until play was suspended. So my takeaway from all of that is that Koulibaly's struggles were not because his quality diminished, but for other reasons, and because of that, I'd posit that his value has only decreased marginally. Now we know De Laurentiis had previously rejected an offer of 100 million euros from the Premier League, and we also know that Manchester United paid 80 million pounds for Harry Maguire last summer when he was 26 years old. Koulibaly is 28, now you can debate who's better uh, defensively between the two of them, but taking into account the hit that the markets are probably going to take because of COVID-19, I'd put Koulibaly's value somewhere around 85 to 95 million euros. Now if Napoli do sell him, they'll make a huge profit because he was acquired from Genk in 2014 for only 8.5 million euros. In terms of interested clubs, there aren't too many that can afford that price tag. Three of them that can are Manchester United, Manchester City, and PSG. And there's been some speculation about PSG because Koulibaly recently bought a place there, but I don't read too much into that. He was born in France, so it's not a shock that he would want to live there. But like I talked about with Milik last episode, we'll have to wait and see how COVID-19 affects clubs' spending ability. Koulibaly's contract expires in 2023, so there's not a huge rush to sell him, but at 28, his value will start to decline over time just because of his age. And for players like him, this break is probably a blessing in disguise. It's an opportunity to recover both physically and mentally. When play returns, this is not going to feel like a season is resuming. It's going to feel like a new season has started, albeit a very short one. And any momentum that clubs and players had will be long gone, which I think will benefit Koulibaly uh, mentally. Before I close, let's take a quick look at some of the names that have been suggested as possible replacements should Koulibaly move on. 
Now, this is a bit tricky to assess replacements for a world-class player because most of them are probably going to be downgrades. So the, the big name that's been out on the market is uh, Jan Vertonghen, who plays for Tottenham. He's 33 years old, and Napoli are competing both with Inter and Roma and probably others. But if I'm going to downgrade, I'd rather downgrade for a younger player who has the potential to be the next Koulibaly and can possibly increase in value rather than signing a 33-year-old, even if it is on a free transfer. Another name that's been out there is Diego Carlos, who plays for Sevilla. Um, now, the thing about Diego Carlos is that he has a 75 million euro termination fee. Now, I know you could spread that cost over the term of the contract, but I still think if you're going to fork out that kind of cash for a 27-year-old, then you might as well just keep Koulibaly. The player that I'm very interested in is Mal uh, Malang Sar, who plays for Nice in Liga. He's 21 years old, relatively inexpensive. He's played on the French national youth team since he was 15, so he played on the U15, U16, U17, etc., and despite only being 21, he's already in his fourth season with Nice in Ligue 1. He's clocked nearly 8,000 minutes in Ligue 1, and he's also played in European competition. Uh, but there's quite a bit of competition for him. Uh, Manchester United, PSG, Borussia Mönchengladbach, Leipzig, Wolfsburg are all interested in him. A couple of other names that are out there are uh, Rick Karsdorp who's a 25-year-old. He's got some uh, experience on the international stage. Looks like the asking price is about 14 million euros for him. And Napoli seem to be behind Besiktas and Roma in line. There's also Freiburg's Robin Koch. He's a 23-year-old. Uh, expected price is 20 million euros. And Leipzig are the front runners for him, though apparently Juntoli has made contact with his people. And lastly, uh, quietly, there's uh, Adama Sumaroro, who's a 27-year-old that plays for Genoa. So that's the latest on Koulibaly. I'll continue to monitor the situation, and every two weeks, or if there's a major development, I'll provide an update in the news segment. That'll do for part two. In part three, we'll take a look at the 1988-89 UEFA Cup Final. of you who don't know if you're a younger football fan or if you're new to football the UEFA Cup was the tournament that we now call the Europa League uh, but the format was a little bit different back then there was no group stage and the tournament consisted of six rounds of home and away ties the English clubs had been banned from the tournament for five years and that was a result of rioting at the 1985 UEFA Cup final in Brussels uh, that game was between Juventus and Liverpool, and the English hooligans uh, caused riots that actually led to 39 deaths of Italian and Belgian supporters. So they weren't permitted to play. They didn't end up returning, I believe, until the 1991 uh, tournament. 
Before we get to the game itself, let's talk a little bit about Napoli's run to the final, because uh, they had to beat some pretty good clubs to get there. So in the round of 16, they defeated Bordeaux, who were the reigning Ligue 1 champions. Now that year, they weren't doing too well in Ligue 1, but Napoli managed to win that tie 1-0. Then in the quarterfinals, they would play against Juventus, and after losing the first leg 2-0 at the old Stadio Olimpico di Torino, which was actually Napoli's only loss in the tournament, they would storm back in the second leg with a 3-0 win. And actually made considered making that the feature match of this segment because it was really the marquee match of the tournament. There were 89,000 fans at the San Paolo, and Napoli would score two in the first half, so that made the score 2-2 on aggregate. And then nobody would score again until the final minute of extra time where Alessandro Renica would score to see Napoli through to the semifinals. In the semifinals, they'd defeat another European giant in Bayern Munich. Bayern had won three of their previous four Bundesliga titles, uh, which was really the start of their dominance in the Bundesliga, which continues today. And then that brings us to the final, where Napoli would play against Stuttgart. Now, Stuttgart weren't really expected to reach the final, even though they had finished fourth in the Bundesliga the year prior, and they were sitting in fifth in the Bundesliga heading into this match. So in the first leg, Stuttgart started out well and would actually strike, uh, strike first on a shot out from well outside the box by Maurizio Gaudino. Um, Giuliani really should have done better on that one, but nonetheless, it was 1-0 for Stuttgart. And Gaudino, by the way, was a German international, but both of his parents were from Campania. And his mother was actually from Frata Maggiore, which is the same town in Napoli that Lorenzo Insigne is from. But after the goal, Napoli would take control of the match, and they would equalize in the 67th minute on a penalty taken by Maradona, of course. Now, this was actually a controversial uh, penalty call. First of all, it appears that Maradona actually handled the ball himself when he controlled it, uh, but that's really difficult to see in real time. And, of course, back then there was nothing like VAR. But even if you let that go, the handball called against Stuttgart was actually quite harsh. The ball may have hit the defender's hand, but he certainly didn't handle the ball, and that was the rule at the time. This was the old uh, ball-to-hand ball to rule, and uh, we really need to bring this rule back, by the way, because some of the handball calls this year were just terrible, but we can talk about that another time. Now, Napoli would continue to press in the 87th minute. Uh, Kareka would make it 2-1, which is how the first leg ended, and that brings us to our feature match. So, in the return leg... Otavio Bianchi would use the same squad that he did in the first leg, lined up in the 4-4-2 formation with Giuliani in goal. At the back, uh, Giovanni Francini played the sweeper and Renica played stopper, uh, which is the spot just in front of the sweeper. Ciro Ferrara played left back and Giancarlo Corradini played right back. Then in the diamond midfield, Fusi and Maradona lined up in the middle with Fusi playing as the holding midfielder or the regista and Maradona playing as the attacking builder, midfielder or the Trequartista. Then Fernando de Napoli played on the left wing, and Alemao played on the right wing, and up top was the usual duo of Careca and Carnevale. Like the first leg, Stuttgart would start well, but Napoli would score first. Klingsmann gira per il colpo di testa di Corradini, la palla perviene a Maradona. Maradona per Alemao, c'è fallo di Catanes, l'arbitro facendo che si può proseguire, c'è un buco per Alemao, Carecca, dentro ancora per Alemao, Alemao, tiro, 
El palo de gol, gol de Alemão, grande acción del Napoli, Alemão porta en vantaggio el Napoli, diciannovesimo del primo tempo, Alemão en combinación con Maradona. So like most of Napoli's goals at the time, this play started out with Maradona. Maradona receives a pass at midfield and lays it off for Alamau, uh, just before having his legs completely wiped out by Katanek. Now, thankfully, that foul wasn't called because Alamau would make a piercing run through the middle of the field. He'd play a quick give-and-go with Kareka before finishing past Stuttgart keeper Aiki Emel, who actually came off his line to cut down the angle and got a piece of the shot, but not enough to keep it out. So that would make the score 3-1 on aggregate, and that was an important away goal for Napoli because Stuttgart uh, had scored an away goal at the San Paolo in the first leg. Now Stuttgart would pull one back in the 27th minute as Jurgen Klinsmann headed in off a corner kick to make the score 3-2 on aggregate, but Napoli would retake the lead in the match in the 40th minute. Maradona dalla bandierina. Il colpo di testa di Schaefer, ancora Maradona, dentro, gol! Gol! Gol di Ciro Ferrara! Ferrara con gran botta, mette dentro al 39esimo il gol del 2-1. Grande Napoli, vedete Ferrara che non crede ai suoi occhi e ora con una smorfia di gioia e di commozione va a rifugiarsi nell'abbraccio dei compagni. Rivediamo il tutto. C'è il tiro d'angolo di Maradona, la respinta di Schaefer, ancora il colpo di testa di Maradona, Ferrara con rabbia, gol! 2-1 per il Napoli! So that was Ciro Ferrara scoring his first of the tournament to put Napoli ahead 2-1. It came off a Maradona corner kick, which was headed back towards the touchline, and rather than taking the ball down, Maradona would play a first-time header back into the area for Ferrara to tap in. And I'm always amazed when I watch some of these classic matches at how good of a header of the ball that Maradona was for such a small player. The power that he could generate with, head, with his head was just unbelievable. And this is one of my favorite all-time moments in Napoli's history. I actually posted a picture of the celebration on Twitter not too long ago. And the picture is of Ferrara holding his arms straight up in the air. And Maradona has his arms draped around Ferrara. And I love the look on Ferrara's face during the celebration, which is a mix of sheer joy and a little bit of astonishment that he had actually just scored in the UEFA Cup final. And I think he knew in that moment that Napoli might have just won the UEFA Cup with a 4-2 lead on aggregate and with an extra away goal. And if that didn't seal the game, then certainly Careca's goal in the 62nd minute did. Ancora un gran colpo di testa di Klingsmann, ma è pronto al rilancio. Ferrara e c'è Maradona che può andare verso la porta. Maradona, Maradona viene raggiunto da Hartmann, Maradona poi serve Careca, Careca, gol, gol del Napoli, grandissimo, il Napoli in contropiede, Careca servito da Maradona, è un trionfo, 17 minuti della ripresa, gol del Napoli con Careca. 3 a 1, non ce n'è per nessuno. 3-1. So that was Kareka's sixth goal of the tournament, tying him for most goals. And Kareka actually started the play by flicking a header on for Maradona to run onto. Maradona carries to the top of the box, then holds up for Kareka to rejoin the attack, before playing a square ball across to him. And Kareka would make no mistake on the finish chipping over Emil. And that goal made the score 5-2 on aggregate. Now Stuttgart would score again in the 68th minute on a shot by Gaudino that was redirected by De Napoli into his own goal. And then Olaf Schmaller would head in in the 90th minute to tie the match at 3-3, but it was too little, too late. 
Napoli would go on to win their first and only cup in Europe by a score of 5-4 on aggregate. A few final comments before I close this segment. First, you can't talk about the match without talking about Maradona. As always, he was all over the pitch, he took all corner kicks, all free kicks, and as was the case with the rest of the tournament, he was involved in all goals. One thing that comes up quite often in the Maradona-Messi debate in terms of greatest of all time is the style of play back then. It was far tougher, and I'd love to see a player like Federico Chiesa or Rodrigo De Paul play in that time. And one thing that was great to see was, as tough as the challenges were, players would get right back up regardless of whether a foul was called or not. They didn't roll around pretending to be in agony like we see today, which really slows the game down and kills the flow. And I know Messi has endured his share of ta rough tackles as well, but they were nothing compared to the ones that Maradona endured. Even in this match, Katanek, who was the same player that took out Maradona on the Alamal goal, was shown a yellow card just before the end of the first half for an absolutely brutal tackle on Maradona that in today's game would have been a straight red and probably a three-game suspension. Another difference I noticed in the style of play was how quickly the play transitioned from one end of the pitch to the other, and this was largely through the use of the long ball, which is less common these days. Nowadays, we see clubs focusing on possession and making a much more deliberate transition with lots of passes often coming back before moving forward again, and both Klinsmann and Ferrara's goals started with long balls that led to corner kicks, which led to the goals. So that's my review of Napoli's UEFA Cup win in 1989. That'll also do it for today's episode. If you liked it, please share it with your friends and give it a 5-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to talk about a particular subject, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. Fischetti is F-I-S-C-H-E-T-T-I. Or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. If you're looking for some reading material, you can find my articles at worldfootballindex.com. Until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre.
Social Podcast Network.